Welcome to a brand new Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Discourse and debate is directly linked to freedom. Having hard conversations actually helps to secure our democracy. For those of you who love to stir the waters, democracy needs you. Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, friend of the show and friend of ours, saw a need for a forum to talk about some of the hardest and most uncomfortable challenges facing our country. So she launched the High Noon podcast. And as and I talk about her new podcast on today's show, why we face a high noon moment in America and the need for uncomfortable conversations in order to sustain democracy. So excited for our conversation. Let's get to it. I am joined today by Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and host of the High Noon podcast. Inez, welcome back to Problematic Women. Great to be here. You know, I think it's been, gosh, over two years maybe since we had you on the show. It's been way too long. So really, really glad to have you back with us. I know you are up in New York City now. You moved to the city was it over over a year ago? Maybe how how are things in New York these days? Yeah, I, I actually moved at the height of the pandemic in <laughs> December, and that was a great decision. Actually, uh, if, if you want any tips around New York real estate, it's moving in, in the middle of a pandemic. The pandemic, that's great. Um, when everything is <laughs> shut down. Um, so uh, yeah, but but we moved, um, and we've been planning the move for a while. Uh, my husband and I. But um, obviously, that was delayed by the pandemic and by everything that was going on. Um, we decided to execute. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really like it. I think it's a bit overblown, just all of the stories about the collapse of New York. It's not mm-hmm. that there aren't a lot of problems in New York. And obviously, liberal governance is is making life in the city much harder than it needs to be and mm-hmm. has been for many years. Um, but I just think the focus on New York in the media has more to do with the fact that there's so many media people here than it does the relative, you know, for example, safety on the street. It, it's comparatively to other cities like D.C. or Los Angeles. Um, honestly, New York is, is probably bouncing back out of the big blue cities that did lock down for a very long time. New York has probably bounced back, in my opinion, of the ones I visited the best. Hmm. Um, but so that's that's the counter narrative than than what you'll hear, um, I think, on most of most media outlets. But uh, it's my opinion that it's just because all the media people live here and they they don't visit LA enough. Yeah, I know. I think that's a really interesting perspective, and it makes total sense. Like, there's so so much big media in New York City, and uh, you you report on what's in front of you, and it's <laughs> those catchy headlines of blowing things out of proportion. It sells, so <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but Inez, I'm excited just to just to ask you to share a little bit of your story. You know, when when I think about people that I wouldn't want to debate, you are certainly on that list. You are are so bold about sharing your own views and your beliefs on on policies and ideologies, and I so applaud you for that. I admire you for that. So go ahead and share. A little bit of your story. What drew you into the space of policy and ideas? 
Step one, you know, make sure you have a toxic, obnoxious personality. Um, <laughs> no, I, I uh, actually got started in all of this um, with an internship at the Heritage Foundation. Mm. So uh, great organization over there where you guys are at. Um, I started out interning for the Great Lindsay Burke over in education. And what's, I think, interesting from the perspective of what's going on in ed right now um, is that I knew very, very little about education funding or school choice when I applied to be an intern in the ed department. So I ranked education number one and the departments that I wanted to be in. Um, and that was because, to me, uh, coming from a family, um, who my parents were not born in the United States, my parents came from uh, a communist country, um, it, it was clear to me that we were losing touch with uh, any kind of knowledge, civic knowledge about what makes this country different um, from other countries, uh, what what makes it so much more prosperous, what makes Americans have uh, so much more liberty, um, at least. And I'm, I'm worried we're losing it, you know, more by the day. But um, this this was this was over a decade ago, so um, I still had a lot more hope, I think, um, in terms of restoring some vision of the Constitution, but. I, it was very concerning to me what I saw in my millennial generation, which was a complete and utter ignorance about the history and the structure and the system in this country, coupled with very strong opinions about its its bad points, right? Um, very negative opinions of the United States. Uh, and, and now we see that really bursting into politics in in a much more general way, but I saw it even, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I saw it around me a lot. And so what, the reason I put education was actually, you know, civics, like a civics uh, emphasis that what we really need to do is educate my generation and the generation that comes after um, Gen Z about the actual history of this country and give them some context of what the history of the world has been like so that while we do teach America's, um, you know, darkest moments, uh, we have to teach them in context of, um, of of how human life, the history of human life on this planet, um, which has largely been, uh, to, to, to quote, uh, nasty British, British and short, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, in fact, prosperity and liberty have been the exception, and they're a precious exception that is easily lost, um, not a, a baseline upon which to build utopia, Um so that's why I put education. And then, of course, I, I learned all of Heritage's great policies about school choice and, you know, uh, universal ESAs, education savings accounts, and, and really centering parents in their kids' education. And I think all of those policies will help with the overall goal. But it's interesting to me that as I look back um, at, at more than a decade in education policy, I, I, I think uh, we're just now starting to realize that we really need to focus on the content piece. And that doesn't mean Common Core and it doesn't mean a national curriculum. But conservatives have focused on process and funding and the system of education and improving the system of education through competition, for example. Um, But we also need to pay attention to what is actually being taught. And now you see, you know, thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of parents doing exactly that in school boards, raising concerns, deep and valid concerns about what their children are learning, particularly with regard to the relationship they're going to have with their countries. 
Hmm. country hmm. rather. Yeah, I think that that has been encouraging to see, uh, you know, in the midst of all of the craziness happening within education, I feel like parents are really waking up and saying, whoa, how did we get here? What happened? And part of it is that aspect, I think, of of actually having these really critical conversations and looking at what are we teaching kids? Are we telling them the true history of America, but not only of America, really of the world so that you can kind of compare and contrast and see the differences and see why we are blessed to call ourselves Americans, why we are blessed to live in a society that protects and defends freedom. And, you know, I, I want to get in a little bit to talking about your podcast. You started a podcast in March with Independent Women's Forum called High Noon. And what you all are doing at High Noon is this approach of, okay, we need to be talking about big issues because if we're not having these conversations, there is an actual danger to that. So just talk a little bit about the High Noon podcast, why you decided to start it, and really what the mission is. Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I mean, I just, I really like the medium. Um, I'm a big podcast listener myself. Um, I like the fact that it is one of the few, I think, bright spots on the horizon, the political landscape, that there is such an audience out there that is craving substantive, passionate, but you know, fair conversation, right, about some of these difficult subjects. It tells me that the mainstream media, corporate media, um, and and even um, social media like like Twitter, where you, you have only a few characters, or and there tends to be a combative atmosphere. Um, I, I I think there is a real craving for these conversations on topics that are both controversial but really really important and actually do guide our lives in some way like like the conversation about um, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States um, you know what where is the left going where is the right going in this country um, you know what are the next 10 years likely to bring um, all of that I think the reason I started it was I, I was looking at these uh, these polls from college students, um, and and two numbers stood out at me. One, uh, the the majority, something like sixty five percent of um, of people censor. They self censor, right? Which means they don't even say what their political opinions are, even though they're in the majority, right? 65% is not a fringe belief, right? And these people have lots of different beliefs, but it means that the majority of the political spectrum does not feel comfortable, um, you know, actually engaging in political discussion. And frankly, that, that, that worries me not just on the, on the sort of superficial level, but because of the ways that it truly, I think it warps our souls, right? Um, to, to, to start developing essentially two, two selves, right? One where you say the right things out loud and then like a second sort of voice in the back of your mind that says, well, I don't really believe this. I think that that is, I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic, but it is psychological training for living under authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't need, um, you don't need to have a, a gulag. In fact, you know, by the time you get to the later Soviet Union, you have very little need for the gulag because you've had 
a couple generations of people who grew up knowing that there are things they cannot say and do, um, or, or, and, and eventually you get to a point where, and this is what I really worry about, that, you know, the, our generation now may be the last people to remember what it was like before people started to censor themselves and not uh, speak up about important political topics, even though they may be in the majority. Democracy cannot function in a real sense when the citizen cannot examine, you know, a a broad spectrum of ideas and candidates. Um, It's kind of like a a, a faux democracy in a similar way um, that, again, not that the mechanism is completely harsher, and I'm not comparing either the gulags or now this comparison I'm making with the Islamic Republic of Iran, but where the mullahs choose the candidates, right? Um, where they, they decide Iran is, quote-unquote, a democracy, but they choose, the candidates are chosen and approved by um, a, a group of mullahs, and, and then nobody can, can stray outside of the bounds that are set by that higher body. So that's not, that's an ersatz democracy. That's not a real democracy. We recognize that. But in the same way, if, if in a liberal democracy, without the, the need of having, um, you know, sort of the, the government mechanism of censorship, if everybody censors what they actually think and the boundaries of what's acceptable in political debate shrink and shrink and shrink, um, that is in the same sort of way, even though it's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm very glad there are no mullahs and no gulags in the United States. But you end up with the same result where you're choosing between a pre-selected, essentially, um, narrow range of possibilities. And that's that's not really government, you know, of the people or by the people. Um, that That is a pre-selected type of limited democracy. And, and so that I mean, that really worries me that Americans are learning to do that. And it, it, the reason that um, I started my podcast, and, and as I said, the, the sort of bright spot is, I think people are getting really fed up with it. They're getting really tired of being told that, you know, <laughs> as of five minutes ago, the, the, the range of what they're allowed to think, say, and do has shrunk even more. Um, and that, that's why I do think uh, they're, they're listening to podcasts like High Noon or, or, or this one, Problematic Women, and they're looking, they're speaking um, voices who are willing to say things that are maybe um, were not controversial at all, uh, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago, right? But that that have disappeared from our, our political spectrum, um, at least if you if you only listen to mainstream news sources. So anyway, the, that, that's the, the dark part and then the, the bright spot. And I, I have been encouraged by the response to the podcast um, I think I've gotten some great DMs, great emails from listeners, uh, great reviews that that say what, you know, they like this conversation or that one. Um, But I I do think these are the conversations we have to have to to remain a free country. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm I'm essentially hearing you say is there is a direct and very close link between democracy and a free society and having discourse and having debate and having disagreement that they have to to stay together. One requires the other. Yeah, I think I think very much so. I mean, we, we lose sight of what the First Amendment is for, right? Um, especially in this day and age, uh, post 1960s and 70s court decisions, where the First Amendment is, is completely a free-for-all. And perhaps that's for, for the best. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, for example, Sullivan was wrongly decided. 
Um, but perhaps it's for the best that, for example, we tolerate um, obscenity, right? We tolerate pornography um, because we don't want the government to get into the business of deciding what is, um, you know, what is what is real, quote unquote, speech and, and or art and what is obscene. Um, but it's to avoid that decision in order to protect the heart of what actually matters under the First Amendment which is speech about politics, which is speech about society, which is speech when you speak as a citizen. Like that is the heart of what is try- the First Amendment is trying to protect. And we only incidentally protect all of these other things so that, you know, we avoid government getting in and, and for example, censoring something that is a political critique by calling it obscene. That's what we're fundamentally worried about. Um, and that's what our founders were worried about, even though the states coexisted with obscenity laws for many years, but even even the the, the concept is the heart of poli- of the First Amendment is societal speech, political speech, kind of speech that that may make people in power uncomfortable. That is the purpose, and you really cannot have a uh, sorry. I hope we can't hear that. That's my dog. Um, <laughs> but you really can't have a democracy, um, and you can't have a free society unless people are free to sharpen their ideas against each other to to actually hear a critique of something they may have taken for granted. That is the essence of self-government and that's the process of Mm. self-government. And so if if we lose that, we will very quickly lose everything else. Even, even if the the first amendment remains a parchment barrier, um, what we'll see is, is that censorship will, will just shift to the private sphere. And we're indeed, we're already seeing that, right? Mm. We're seeing that um, companies are, 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 um, doing things that are antithetical to the spirit of free speech, but because they're not the government, the First Amendment doesn't apply. Um, but, but that doesn't mean it's any less pernicious for the actual purpose and culture that underlies a free society where people are free to speak their mind. Mm-hmm. And as what I love about what you're saying is I feel like it, it puts the power back in our hands to recognize that just by being willing to have debate, to have conversation, to bring up hard topics with friends or or family members in a in a loving and respectful way but just by the nature of being willing to do that we actually are playing a role in furthering freedom and i think that that is encouraging in a society where uh, like you say we are seeing uh, we are seeing things go further and further to the far left and it can get a little discouraging so um, i'm i'm taking that that nugget of okay there's something that i can actually that i can actually do about this um, i do want to ask you about the name i love it high noon tell us where that where the name comes from so there are a few different layers to this, but first, I wanted to respond to what you're saying. Yes, this I totally agree. This is something that we can do and we must do. And it's not, this is an area in which I consider myself enormously blessed because I work for the Independent Women's Forum, which is a wonderful organization um, that, you know, actually pays me to, um, <laughs> you know, to, to speak about these issues. And I, I have no fear of being canceled in, in that regard, right? Um, so I understand that I'm coming to, to use the left's favorite language, right? I'm coming from a place of privilege here. Um, I'm not worried about putting food on the table um, because I said the wrong thing, right? And I'm I'm not worried about my financial networks or for that matter, you know, my social networks. I, I have liberal friends, but they, they've had to get used to the fact that I'm a conservative. <laughs> um, and those of them who haven't decided that the friendship wasn't worth 
uh, being friends with the deplorable um, have, have, you know, sort of moved on. And, and those of them who've decided that they were just not going to, to talk about politics, those ones have stuck around. But even my social networks are not dependent in the same way that would make me vulnerable to being canceled, right? Um, so I understand that I'm speaking I'm speaking to people who, who are going to be facing much steeper consequences potentially mm-hmm. for speaking their mind mm-hmm. than I do. And I'm like very cognizant of that fact. But if, if we are actually going to in any way beat back this ideology, what has to happen is when you see one of those pieces, for example, on Barry Weiss's Substack or a reported piece that's talking about how a school has gone extremely, extremely woke and parents are unhappy. And then you say, you see like these, these incredible quotes from, from parents saying, you know, crazy things about what their children are subjected to and saying, you know, this is, this isn't right. And then at the end of that quote, it'll say request to remains anonymous by request. Hmm. Right. We're not going to win until that changes. Um, Because as long as there are people what the majority is afraid to put their name and face to these beliefs and to actually take uh, take the blowback and take the, the name calling and, and take the potential consequences for that. Um, the more people step forward to do that, you know, publicly, the more it gives the actual majority courage to do the same. Um, so I, 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 I understand what, what we're asking people to do, and I understand that it's harder for them than for me because I do work in, in the field I do. But fundamentally, this country is not going to change trajectory until people start to step forward yeah. in that way. Um, so, and, and actually, that's very related to why I call my podcast High Noon. Um, so there's sort of three layers. So this one is the much more serious layer what we just discussed. I do think it's, I think it's time. I think it's high noon for the country. I, 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 um, I think all of these trends that we're seeing flourish that started decades ago in many cases, but have now fully reached mainstream halls of power, right? And here I'm not just talking about the squad being elected. Um, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that this ideology has seized not only the education system and the academy, uh, which, which for a long time the right wrongfully dismissed as like, oh, well, these you know blue-haired college students, they'll graduate, they'll hit the quote-unquote real world. Um, and then they'll have to rethink all of these crazy beliefs that make absolutely no sense. Well, what's happened is those students have remade the world in their image. They graduated into the media rooms. They graduated into the boardrooms. They graduated into middle management, to HR. Um, and, and what we're seeing now is they're remaking the world um, in their image according to their radical ideology. Um, and and so I, I do think it's, it's sort of it's high noon for the country because this ideology, which was once a part of the left, um, but did not take mainstream power, is now not only in power in, in, in the White House under the, the sort of cover of, of Joe Biden, who has you know been at the exact center of his political party uh, for the last <laughs> decades. And by, by that mean, I mean, he's moved left and left and left as the center of the party has moved left and left and left. Um, but, but his administration has really... Uh, operationalized a lot of this ideology from, for example, uh, proposing a rule to give federal grants to K-12 schools um, in order to teach Ibram Kendi and critical race theory, right? 
um, his his administration has very much operated uh, as as an administration that that is quote unquote woke. Um, and then beyond political power, what we, we finally see here is that even in the private sector, uh, these major corporations, almost every uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, this is a subject that Heritage, um, you know, wrote a lot about the uh, the Equality Act, right? Which is a radical piece of legislation that would would redefine sex under the law, so that it's based on gender identity, which would effectively eliminate for women all kinds of protections, mm-hmm. um, and both with regard to privacy and with regard to safety. Um, this is this is like a huge and radical uh, shift. In, in our law, and yet when that piece of legislation circulated, um, there was a letter signed in favor of it, and on that letter you can find virtually any recognizable American corporation um, that you might be familiar with and use products for, all right? Um, not only the, all the big tech companies, of course, uh, but, but also, you know, Pfizer, also um, Merrick, whatever, I can't remember the second pharmaceutical company, um, also, you know, every American airline from Southwest to United to American, right, uh, Delta, all of those companies signed a letter in favor of redefining sex in the federal law. So, you know, it's pretty clear to me that there there is an institutional backing and power for this ideology now, and that there is perhaps a majority coalition coming together that is not comfortable with the direction of the country, but may not agree on exactly where to go from here. Yeah. And so that's why I do, I do think the next few years are going to be a tipping point. And I'm not even talking about elections. I know we hear that every year with regard to elections, but um, in terms of the culture and the country, we will either accept this as a new normal and continue now that essentially, and I hate the word wokeism, but (laughs) Um, the wokes have consolidated power in America's most important institutions. We're just going to continue on this track, you know, indefinitely. Or there will be a organized and and hard pushback on this. So that's that's why the name. Um, and then I just I like the movie uh, <laughs> High Noon with Gary Cooper. Western is very iconic. Uh, represents America in many ways abroad as well. The Western generally is. Um, you know, it's a uniquely American genre. Um, and to the extent when here's the third layer, I have a poster uh, that I sometimes record in front of, uh, which is a solidarity poster, the anti-communist uh, movement in, in the late 80s um, in Poland. Uh, and so they, that, that American, that idea of the American cowboy, the white hat who stands up and does what's right in the face of overwhelming odds, that becomes such an iconic image Mm -hmm. that decades later after this movie was made with Gary Cooper, um, you know, in, in the late 1980s, when asking people to do something, you know, much harder than I think we're at the point of needing to do, but, but something of similar type, which is step forward and vote against an authoritarian regime, put your name on the dotted line, you know, and take the potential consequences if you lose, right, for, for declaring yourself against the government. Um, the way that they they were asking people to do that in Poland in 1989 was with this poster. 
with Gary Cooper marching at high noon to the sheriff's office to the train station, right? And instead of his gun, he has a vote. Yeah. I think that is really where where we're at in, in a whole variety of ways. And I guess the one the one uh, encouraging thing I would have to say is that America has an incredibly pragmatic uh, middle class that is ill used to taking orders. This is not, you know, Russia in 1917. There are no peasants in America. Uh, there are, generally speaking, um, you know, well-educated, prosperous, uh, middle-class families who are entirely unused to this form of of society and government, um, and and will react, I hope, strongly and and with that American genius of of um, civil organizing, right? Like. It's incredible in America, like, you know, there's there's a pothole on the street and suddenly there's a committee uh, that's set up among <laughs> neighbors, right, to, to go and lobby the city council and, and go to all the city council meetings and make sure the, the pothole is fixed, right? America has this genius and what, what um, Tocqueville observed, of course, but mm-hmm. this genius for civic organizing um, and for extra governmental organization and groups um, and, and building alliances in that way. Uh, and and I, I do hope that at high noon, so to speak, the, the American middle class will wake up and start to use their, their genius for this type of organizing to to push back in, in a way that is, is really difficult to ignore. Yeah. Well, I love that you have taken on this challenge through your podcast, High Noon, of saying we have got to be having these hard conversations right now and honestly – the future of our nation really rides on our our willingness to stand up, to say something, to be clear, to be direct about where we are headed as a country. Um, and as before, before I let you go, as as you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about feminism, and we often will ask guests, "Do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes, no, why or why not?" Well, I already know that you do not consider yourself a feminist. Uh, anyone that follows you on Twitter will see in your bio that you say, "I am an anti-feminist." So let me just ask you, why why are you an anti-feminist? Why is that the approach you have taken? Because upon closer reading of going back, um, you know, even to the the ways of feminism that I think the right sort of points back to and says, you know, it doesn't have to be crazy. You can have um, a more moderate form of, of feminism um, that, that brings sort of advancements for women and, and it's a good thing generally. Um, but I, going back and reading folks, for example, like Simone de Beauvoir um, or Betty Friedan, even though they in no way endorse or, or some of the, the things that we hear today from the feminist left, I, I tend to think that the ideas, that the fundamental idea was there, which is that the differences between the sex are fundamentally a construct. They're a social construct. Um, they're created by society. They're not born. They're not inborn in our biology. Um, they're created in some way or socialized um, by by the world in which we live and the society in which we live. Um, and I just fundamentally disagree with that idea. And I, if, if you disagree with that nugget, that like underlying bedrock of feminism, that men and women are for all inter- intents and purposes interchangeable, they are the same. Um, 
And of course, now we have the, the, um, the fully like loony idea that even biological sex, even these like obvious differences between our bits, right. Um, are socially constructed. And, and I think more people can see that that's lunacy, but I think it follows directly from the idea that biological sex should not be important about anything in your life, right? If we say that biological sex should not matter for how you choose your career, how you plan your family life, right? How, um, you know, how, how you behave in relations with the opposite sex, right? If we say that biological sex has nothing to do with any of those fundamental, you know, aspects of human life and, and human relations, then it seems logical to me to ultimately say that it doesn't matter at all. Um, because if you move from it doesn't matter to anything that's actually intrinsic or important in our lives, I don't think it's that hard to take the final step and say it doesn't matter at all. I think these things are, are, are connected. One follows the other. It's just one more radical form of the same idea. Um, and so that's why I call myself an anti-feminist, because, not because I don't believe that women have natural rights, not because I don't believe that the U.S. Constitution does and, and ought to protect women under the law the same way that it, it protects men. Um, but we shouldn't be starting from the premise. I think if you start from the premise that sex is socially constructed, it's easy to find on uh, find yourself accepting a position like that works backwards, for example, from the premise that or, or the idea that everything, all these outcomes ought to be equal between men and women. We ought to see an equal number of female astronauts and male astronauts. We ought to see you know, men and women making exactly the same amount of money and exactly the same jobs, making all the exactly the same decisions. And the right is always on our heels trying to describe, well, no, you know, the wage gap isn't real. It's because women choose different college majors. They choose, um, you know, different hours. Uh, they choose flexibility over higher pay, blah, 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 blah. Um, all of those reasons, though, and, you know, Christina Hoff Summers and others have made that case excellently and, and in nearly an airtight way. And yet we hear the wage gap, the wage gap, the wage gap, the wage gap, because this idea of, of quote-unquote equality mm-hmm. is so powerful that we expect, we expect things to be equal. And I, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and say we shouldn't expect things to be equal between men and women. Men and women are equal. They have equal dignity. Mm-hmm. They should have you know, equal rights under the law. We should have equal free speech rights, equal rights to bear arms, right? Equal rights to vote. That's a civic, civic right. But we shouldn't expect men and women to be, you know, more broadly, quote unquote, equal mm-hmm. um, because we should expect that women are biologically different. They're psychologically different, right? The, the differences between us are not just our, we have different genitalia. We have different, you know, brain structure. Our brains work in different ways, which doesn't mean that women are stupider than men, for example. But like women have different um Women have better peripheral vision and men have better binocular vision, for example, right? Um, probably having something to do with the fact that men were going out and hunting, right? Um, I mean, there, there are thousands of ways in which our bodies are very different. And to me, what a true, true free society would do is shape us into better women and better men, accepting those differences, you know, um, embracing those differences, and then trying to set you know, sort of a default path in society that, that respects and is more likely to bring harmony and happiness between the sexes and, and, and end up with, you know, no political regime can, can make everybody happy. But uh, you can set the conditions for human flourishing 
if you respect the underlying biology, under, understand it, um, I think this is incredibly liberating. I've found it personally in my life very, very liberating to, you know, understand what the differences are between men and women, understand why, for example, my husband might misinterpret something that I like to <laughs> see one way or he sees the other, right? You know, like, totally. These, these are things our grandmothers obviously knew, but we have to relearn. So that's, that's why I, I call myself an anti-feminist. I, I think we need to re-embrace the differences between men and women and, and uh, to, to, to really enjoy them, which mm. I don't think anybody is in, enjoying uh, the, the sexual culture we have right now between men and women. Left, right, I think we all can agree that this sucks. Um, so I, I, I think that any improvement has to be built on the reality of sex differences. Mm. Inez Stepman, Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and host of the High Noon Podcast. If you have enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to check out Inez's podcast, High Noon, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. You can follow her work at the Independent Women's Forum. She also writes for The Federalist. Inez, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us on Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a great week, and we will see you on Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.